already called on his expertise, but we'll do it some more. <laughs> Tom Vansack, how are you, Tom? Doing great. Happy yeah. New Year to you yeah. and everyone listening. Yeah. Glad you're here, here today. Yeah. I, I had no idea that the biological station was 125 years old. We are. 2024 is a big year for us, celebrating 125. I was looking at some stats, and we're 25 years older than Disney. We've, <laughs> we predate the cartoon mouse by a quarter century. So that was like 1898? 1899. 1899. Yeah. Originally in Big Fork, uh, okay. rented property from the Slider family right near the old steel bridge, and moved to our current location in Yellow Bay around 1910. What, uh, uh, what precipitated the need for a biological station? Yeah, our founder, Morton Elrod, was the first professor of biology at the University of Montana, and he came from Iowa, and he explored western Montana and basically said, oh my gosh, this place is amazing. We need to study it and understand it and protect it for the future. So he was very forward-looking at that time, uh, other biological stations were being started around the U.S., but for Montana, such a young state, it was really mm -hmm. the early one. And now we, with, we uh, appreciated him so much, we named a school after yeah, him. Yeah, that's right. Yep, there's a school here in Kalispell. There's a yep. dorm down at University of Montana main campus. Uh, two, two. Okay, right. now 125 years, are there certain baseline readings that you've been taking during that entire time so you can compare uh, the evolution of the lake? Yeah, one of the first things Elrod did when he got to the Flathead was explore the lake. And uh, one of his first kind of scientific papers was called A Biological Reconnaissance of Flathead Lake. I think it's from about 1901. But once Elrod got up here, he explored the lake. He was the first person to use a motorized boat on the lake. <laughs> so everyone who water skis and jet skis out there can <laughs> look back to Elrod as the yeah. first person out there on the lake motoring around. And they left the little uh, uh, rainbow film on top of the lake too <laughs> yeah the engines back then probably yeah. spilled a lot of fuel yeah but we're so fortunate we have such a big lake with so much clean water it can withstand things like yeah. that mm -hmm. but uh are certain readings uh what how did that evolve i you know like uh, i i don't know what kind of things you might read uh, chemically or evolutionary uh, in the evolutionary <laughs> you know, in the lake uh, where you have points of comparison past and present yeah absolutely the early stuff that scientists could do was looking at the biological community what organisms live in it the fish the little animals called the zooplankton and the algae so the early data we have is the creatures that lived in the lake and we've got a a long-term record of the changes in the community over time as people introduced additional species. The nutrient data and the chemical data, really the technologies didn't start um, becoming available for that until the, you know, the 50s and 60s. And so our first chemical and nutrient data for the lake is, you know, about 50 years old now. So Elrod back then didn't have those techniques or those right. technologies, but he could see mm -hmm. how those things resulted in algae growth and fish and, and animal growth. I was just thinking we were probably pretty close to pristine in the early days. I would make a case that we're still pretty close to pristine now, which Excellent. is one of the things that makes yeah. Flathead Lake so special. But yeah, yeah. When, when Morton Elrod showed up, this lake was pretty much entirely natural. And one of his goals was to keep it that way. And so the station today, we kind of keep that legacy going of using our scientific knowledge to foster sound management decisions and protect this lake that we love and also depend upon economically. Well, right. unfortunately, not all of our management decisions have been good decisions. My, when I was a kid, we used to fish for Dolly Varden. 
Dolly and uh, in the lake, they're gone. Uh, Dolly Varden are were reclassified as bull trout, ah. and so there still are bull trout. But you're right, the numbers are really low, and that had to do with the arrival of the mysa shrimp. The mysa mm-hmm. shrimp was supposed to foster the kokanee salmon, and that didn't work out that way. And when the mysa shrimp arrived, lake trout, which were from the Great Lakes, really really took off. And oh. great, and the lake trout are big predators, so they oh. eat a lot of baby bull trout. How yeah. is it that the shrimp arrive? The shrimp are from the Great Lakes, and they were widely um, introduced throughout Western North America in the 50s, 60s, and 70s by well-intentioned fisheries managers of their day. The idea was they're, they're big. They're almost a, an inch long, and our native fish food are tiny, like the size of a point of a pencil. Mm-hmm. And so the idea back then was if we bring this bigger food package, we're going to have more, bigger, and better fish. Mm-hmm. And it didn't necessarily work out that way in every place that they were introduced. And really, mm-hmm. in places that had the fish that evolved with the mysis shrimp, those non-native fishes like lake trout really took over, which impacts yeah. your fishing for the species that you yeah. enjoyed when you were yeah. a kid. Yeah, yeah, I certainly did, and I was shocked to learn that they were no longer in the lake um, after years of being away. So that, but you know, you you try, and uh, in the best of intentions sometimes doesn't always work out. Yeah. Now the CSKT they do the uh, the, the, the fishing yeah, uh, the lake derby, trout. you know, every year to thin the lake trout down. That kind of genie is out of the bottle, though, isn't it? I mean. It, would it be possible to bring back the way it was before the uh, shrimp, or is the the shrimp still out there? The shrimp is out there. No yeah. one has ever gotten rid of the shrimp any place that it's been introduced. Ah. And as you mentioned, the tribes have been trying to remove as many lake trout as possible to give the native bull trout and the native cutthroat trout a chance again in the lake. And they use both the fishing derbies, but they also use um, commercial fishing techniques called gill netting year-round uh-huh. to knock those lake trout numbers back. Um, They're definitely impacting the lake trout population, but the question you're asking is a good one. No one really knows the answer. Could we humans knock back the lake trout enough to bring back that original community? Uh, It's a great question that lots of people want to know the answer to. I I want to, this is outside of Flathead Lake, but uh, uh, I think think it's a bullseye lake up in the the park where they want to, uh, uh, they want to reintroduce the bull trout up there uh, after... Uh, I guess, removing all the other species. Um, Is that a good thing? If you're a native species, it's a good thing. So (laughs) even in Glacier Park, the managers of that era introduced a lot of non-native fishes. And the idea was you got to a water body. It didn't have the things you liked. It didn't have a lot of fishes. A lot of our lakes around here were fishless. And so they introduced a lot of non-native species. Rainbow trout is the most widely introduced species on the planet. They've got them in South America. They've got them in New Zealand. They're from Western North America. But rainbows are not native to the flathead. And so a lot of the the lakes in Glacier Park and the Bob Marshall, they had rainbow trout introduced to them by uh, pack train, helicopter, railroad train in different places. And so what you're talking about is to remove the non-native rainbow trout and to put back the native species in there, both bull trout and cutthroat trout. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it depends what you like to fish for, but there are legislations in place that require the recovery of native species and the federal government and the park service take that stuff very seriously. You know, Gunsight Lake is way up high and, uh, uh, the theory is that uh, that if you do that and you put only the native trout up there, 
The other ones can't come up in hybridism, so we actually would we would have bull trout, but they never had fish at all up there until 1916. Yeah, some of, a lot of our high country lakes were fishless, and I've seen studies in other places that humans put fish into a lot of these high alpine lakes, and they changed the community. Uh, we've lost a lot of our frogs and amphibians in places mm. where fish were stocked that were historically fishless. And so mm -hmm. you know, I, I think if we have a blend, right, if we have places that have fish, places that don't have fish, places that have the native species— we're not going to get rid of the non-natives everywhere. Mm -hmm. So I think we just need to find a balance that works for everyone and works for those species. Uh, this is, um, uh, and I'm kind of bringing this around full circle, Tom, because what you have learned and what you've learned at the uh, biological station over the last uh, century and a quarter, uh, these are the kinds of things that keep us from making these kind of mistakes. One hopes so, right? By reflecting yeah. on our history, we can not repeat the same mistakes. And I and personally feel really privileged to work at a place like the biological station that has this long-term record that cares and studies water. I mean, four or five of your most recent stories before I came on were all water stories. That's right. Mm -hmm. It matters to all of us. We depend on it for life, for recreation. And um, so having a place like the station be a steward of our waters, the sentinel of the lake is is really invaluable. And for me to be kind of part of something that's bigger than me that spans generations, it's it's a real honor and point of pride. At what point did the University of Montana become involved in the biological station? Always. We've always been part of the University of Montana. Mm -hmm. And actually, the original seed funding through UM came from one of the Copper Kings. Oh, so we're, really? we're really tied to that old Montana history. Mm -hmm. So the, the university now uses that. I think not, maybe not everybody understands how the university uses that in research and uh, how you guys are generating reports and papers that are used worldwide. Yep. We work on freshwater, well, actually all water around the planet. We actually have an oceanographer, Matt Church, you've met here before. Mm -hmm. And we are a world-renowned aquatic research facility. Obviously, our work in the Flathead is our kind of main focus and our bread and butter. But what we learn here can be used in other places to protect and, and restore other waters elsewhere. You've written several papers. I have. Yeah. What? What uh, are you working on? A new one now? Um, I'm a river ecologist, and so my work is largely on the Middle Fork Flathead. We've got a long-term research site on the Nyack floodplain of the Middle Fork, and our work there, to me, has been really interesting. Um, I jumped in when it was partway underway because we've been working there since the '80s. But our rivers here in the Flathead, they actually a lot of the water flows underground. And most people think of the river as kind of the ribbon of blue that you see in the main channel. Yeah. But here with our, our geology, our glacial geology, there's a lot of spaces between the rocks. And so our water will flow underground and pop back into the river. In some places, the river water is going into the ground. Some places, that groundwater is coming mm. back into the river. And for a long wow. time, people thought that groundwater and surface water were different. But it's all river water. It's all coming from the same place. And sometimes it's underground and sometimes it's on the surface. And... To me, that's always been really fascinating, and the organisms that utilize those opportunities are really fascinating. There's all these groundwater insects and groundwater crustaceans that we only find in circumstances like this. Does that happen in lakes, too? It can. It depends on what the substrate, what the bottom of the lake is. Yeah, I've felt situations where I'm swimming along, and all of a sudden it gets really cold. Yes, 
That is a great observation. That is groundwater coming back up to the surface. Wow. I had no idea. Mm -hmm. Groundwater stays cold year round. And so when we're studying waters, we look for those temperature changes and that'll indicate whether you have groundwater coming in in a location mm -hmm. or not. What are you trying to prove with the uh, paper that you're writing on the middle fork? Um, for me, it's about letting nature run its course and keeping things as natural as possible. Mm -hmm. And humans can impact and affect everything. Here in the Flathead, we're really fortunate that kind of the the balance of nature is pretty heavy on the nature, and so that's something that I care about here. And through our science, we can help guide those informed management decisions to protect the, the natural ecosystems and the natural species that we have here. How prevalent is this groundwater, and uh, I mean, does it happen everywhere? It depends on the geology. Um, mm -hmm. The Missoula Valley has lots of it. The, the size of the rocks that are underground in the Missoula Valley are gigantic because of the Glacial Lake Missoula floods. And so the fastest and most abundant water of this type ever documented is in the Missoula Valley. Here in the Flathead, the rocks are a little smaller, but we've got extensive um, underground river systems below our feet, um, underneath the airport, uh, certainly the evergreen area. There's a lot of river water that is flowing underneath our, our towns and our streets. I, I'd understood at one point that... They were going to build a shopping center out in Evergreen, but the parking lot would only be like four feet above the water level. Yeah, and uh, where we a... put our infrastructure really matters. Um, the 1964 flood was our flood of record here, and a lot mm -hmm. of what is now Evergreen was underwater then. So where we put that stuff, it's important to think through. And the court, the, 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 that was, you put uh, asphalt down and um, cars park on it and drip oil and chemicals down. They leach right into the water and eventually gets in the river. It does, and then ultimately into Flathead Lake. So mm -hmm. just showing that connectivity of our river and groundwater and all of that stuff ending in the lake, it makes us think about what we do in the whole valley because all of our decisions are ultimately ending up in Flathead Lake. <laughs> I'm thinking about the new septage plant that uh, they want to build uh, south of here. Uh, the county's looking at it, Lakeside uh, Water and Sewer looking at it, and I would think this is something that uh, would really help Flathead Lake. We need to address this problem with all of the homes on septic systems here. We need a place for the, the pumpage, the stuff that comes out of our septic tanks, to be put and processed. And mm -hmm. we don't have that right now. Until now, we've basically been using land application where the pumpers spread it on the farmer's fields, oftentimes down near the river. That's not an effective technique. It's worked when we were sparsely populated, but now that we are density is increasing, mm -hmm. we need a centralized processing location. So we're just kind of growing up. Are we really concerned that that's, that's, that uh, septage that we're putting in, uh, plowing in, is that actually, are we concerned it's getting into our waters? I think we should be concerned about it. All right. right? Yeah. When, when you're spreading a little bit of it, nature can process it. When yeah. you have a major population increase and we're spreading a lot more of it on less mm -hmm. areas, that pollution will make its way into the groundwater. Well, I know our modern uh, food producers and farmers uh, certainly understand the uh, importance of uh, controlling their uh, the fertilizers and the chemicals they put on their crops. Absolutely. What we put on our crops ends up in our bodies. And mm. So putting the, the waste in one place and the beneficial things in another makes sense. <laughs> okay. What major, uh, uh, just from you, Tom, you're, you're a... Uh, you're a PhD at least once over, aren't you? I just have a master's, but uh, I still right. work in that arena. Are you, are you, are you working toward a dissertation? 
Nope. Um, I made a decision not to do a PhD years ago because if I did, I would do more of the things I don't like doing <laughs> okay. and less of the things I do like doing, right? So for me, that was the choice I made. So I do a lot of on-the-ground science and a lot of the operations of the station. And mm -hmm. if I had a PhD, I'd have to be doing other things. So I'm happy with my decision. Rank has its privileges, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Although with my rank these days, I don't go outside very much. <laughs> but the... Uh, uh, but you are you are publishing, mm -hmm. and you're being published uh, around the world. So um, these are the kinds of things that uh, are coming from our biological station through the University of Montana and allowing uh, the rest of the world to understand what we're coming to understand. Absolutely. And what we've learned from this place is that in part we've been lucky, but in part society has worked really hard to protect our waters from human impacts, especially nutrient pollution. And our biostation's long-term monitoring program set up in the 70s started seeing impacts of nutrient pollution in the 70s and 80s. And people at that point in time got together and said, we need to address this problem. And so in the 80s and 90s, the whole Flathead Valley upgraded our sewage treatment plants to low-level phosphorus removal. We banned phosphorus-containing detergents. We sewered areas of shallow groundwater, like you were talking about, in places like Evergreen. And mm -hmm. those things worked. And societal investment in protecting what we love can work. And the Flathead is a success story. And we compare our data to lakes and rivers all over the, the world and all over the U.S. And most lakes are getting more polluted. They have more nutrients from human activity. They're getting green. They're getting brown. And Flathead Lake isn't. And to me, we really have the residents of the Flathead Valley from the 1970s and 1980s, the scientists of the biostation from that era as well, to thank because they did the research, they identified the problem, and then everyone got together and fixed it. And I just love the fact that people are getting together and fixing something that benefits all of us. What about uh, snow cover or snowfall? We're, uh, we're a little scant on it this year, and last year we were pretty scant too, and it caused some real problems with, uh, well, with uh, Flathead Lake. Um, are you concerned about that? I would love to see more snow. Um, one, I ski. So I want, sure. I want the snow up there for skiing. But just like you said, the, the precipitation we get in the winter comes down through the river system during runoff and then ends up in the lake. And if there isn't enough water to go around, we don't get all of the, the benefit and enjoyment that we do in a normal year. And the river levels coming down from even Glacier Park and the Bob Marshall Wilderness last year were as low as they've ever been recorded, and that is of definite concern. In this place that we're famous for abundant, clear, clean, blue, abundant, clear, clean blue water, it's a shock to us when we don't have enough. I was just absolutely shocked uh, at the Middle Fork last year. I mean, uh, our, some of our Class 4 rapids, rapids were down to Class 2. <laughs> Boulder Gardens, where you normally have standing yeah, waves. exactly, yeah. Definitely. They had to pick up the, the rafts and pull them over. Um, I guess the question is, what if the snowpack doesn't come back? How are we going to adjust to that? <sighs> that is a really tough and really scary question because we've been really lucky and spoiled up here in the Flathead. While, uh, while other areas of the nation have had significant drought, we've had pretty close to normal precipitation. Uh, I don't know if you've seen some of the pictures of Lake Powell and, and Lake yes. Mead down in on the Colorado system. Yeah those reservoirs are 20, 30 feet below normal. And so the fact that we've been close to full pool is a huge accomplishment for us here. 
um, if weather and climate changes and these changes become more normal, we've got some, some major decisions to make because mm -hmm. until now we've had enough water for us to do everything we want, mm -hmm. but other places have had to deal with the belt tightening already. Mm -hmm. Well, and of course, uh, uh, we appreciate the fact that Flathead Lake gets to full pool by June and, uh, and then uh, we drop it down so the docks don't get beat up in the wintertime. Are we going to continue to be able to do that if this happens? I hope so. You know, yeah. we may have to look at a different way of doing things. Mm -hmm. The dam management, the station isn't involved with that. We look at sure. the water quality. We look at the organisms that live mm -hmm. there. The dam management of the whole Columbia system is really complicated, and you can't just manage Flathead Lake by itself because it's part of this bigger network. Mm -hmm. And so there are federal agencies and tribal entities and state and county entities ranging from the Continental Divide all the way down to Astoria, Oregon, where the Columbia hits the ocean, and they're all working in, in connection. And it's complicated, and with less water, it becomes more complicated and more controversial. So well, we're having a lot of fun playing games with you here, and we love it. We're, <laughs> we're testing Tom Banzek here on all of his water knowledge, and by gosh, you've got a lot of it. So with the 125th anniversary there this year, what do you have planned for that? We have a variety of events coming up. Um, we love to engage the public. The people of the Flathead are so interested in the, our wonderful waters. We get a lot of interested Phone, interesting phone calls from interested people. We annually hold an open house, but we're going to put a anniversary twist on all of our events and add mm -hmm. some more of the, the older stuff into it. We'll probably do some um, uh, articles and pieces about the biostation through the decades. And then mm -hmm. we're also looking to have some events kind of spread out throughout the watershed. So you don't have to come down to Yellow Bay. Someone from Whitefish, Yellow Bay is really far. So we're going to do things in Big Fork and Lakeside and, and spread out throughout the valley so that interested um, community members can, can engage us. And you'll be able to use the program you developed for the schools too. Absolutely. Yep. Our FLAIR K-12 education program has been booming and giving the, the students of the Valley a little bit more historical context about our waters will go a long way. I feel a whole lot better about the water situation than I did uh, before you came in. I was very concerned about uh, the lake levels, as we all were last year. And I guess I have a little more hope that we've got uh, a little better understanding now maybe of how we can correct that if it comes at us again. Most important thing is uh, more precipitation and more snow will uh, alleviate these problems, but that's not in our control. <laughs> yep. Tom, it's always a great conversation. We appreciate you, uh, all the work you guys are doing down there, and we do appreciate you coming in and yeah. talking with us. Thank I you. I enjoyed chatting with you. Thanks so much for the opportunity. <laughs> you bet.